This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And welcome. From Arons International, here's our changing world. Finally, on our changing world tonight, we are back with CRISPR. Last week, I talked to University of Otago geneticists Peter Dearden and Neil Gemmel about the pros and cons of this new gene editing technique. And when I thought we're done, Neil said One area that I would like to come back to is an area called de extinction where people are talking about reconstructing mammoths, for example, uh, from elephants using a series of manipulations based on CRISPR-Cas9 systems. And that's going to require something in the vicinity of 3 million separate nucleotide changes to make hairy elephants. And so we are returning to the discussion, this time focusing on CRISPR and de-extinctions, its use in genomics and conservation, and the question of just how precise it actually is. With all these manipulations, there are risks, and uh, one of the risks with CRISPR that we still don't yet know is what the off-target effects are. So we are targeting a specific base within a specific gene, and probably that will be edited, and we could test that. But then, say, in the human genome, there are another 3 billion bases, and without sequencing that entire genome, at at significant uh, cost and effort still... Um, we wouldn't know what other changes have taken place. And then there's also the query of how do we actually test for changes that have been induced by the CRISPR system versus those that are just naturally occurring mutations. So we need to do quite a bit more experimentation in order to understand what off-target effects might happen. So what you're saying there, Neil, is that although it's precise in doing exactly, you know, targeting exactly that sequence that it's designed for, it may be imprecise in the sense that it could also be doing things that are not the target. Yeah, there's been an increasing amount of effort in tweaking the system. So I think when people started using CRISPR, there was this feeling that it it really was specific, and then there are a few reports showing that actually there were changes in other parts of the genome, which we're not really sure how they come about. This may be sort of imprecise things. As people have worked through the technology, new Cas9 enzymes have been identified which are more specific or ways of designing guide RNA so they're more effective have occurred. So the amount of um, off-target effects has been reduced, and that's probably good and, and fine in research situations and probably good in agricultural situations. But if you're in the position where you're editing a single couple of base pairs in a human embryo, you'd like to be damn sure that you're not editing some other base somewhere else. So really, the technology needs to be focused a little more finely to, to make that work every time. Yeah, so, so what we want is a, a, a laser beam, a very narrow laser beam strategy, as opposed to something that's going to cut a, a very broad swathe through the genome. So it, it's about precision and accuracy. Those are two things that we're not 100% sure about here uh, with respect to crispr Cas9, and, and and one of the th- reasons why we still don't have that certainty, I think, is is just time. 
So this technology really uh, came to the fore about 2012. So we're only talking about four years of very, very intensive research effort, but still nonetheless only four years of work in this domain. And it's only a couple of years since it was shown to be a tool that could be used to edit mammals, um, and in particular mice. So it's still, it's, I still think it's relatively early days, um, although very exciting. But on the back of that, we had the UK approval for the use of CRISPR in human embryos in the first seven days for research purposes only. But was that then too fast? No, part of the issue here is that whatever we do, the technology will be used. There was a report late last year of CRISPR being used to modify human embryos in China. Uh, it was published. It's a, the, I've read it. It's, a, it's an interesting paper. So they were working in triploid human embryos, so embryos that have been fertilised by two sperm, which is an aberration, and those embryos were never going to develop. And they were testing the ability to modify a particular locus associated with a disease, and they showed that they had a pretty good job uh, of being able to do that. So clearly the technology being thought about in terms of uh, repairing inborn errors of genetics is, is already underway. The research in England it was a bit of a surprise to me, but actually, on reflection, I think it's probably a good thing that people are starting to ask questions in a research sense about what can we achieve in a human embryo, what are the barriers, what, what are the problems with the technology. I think it's better that we understand that in these situations where the embryos are, are not viable or um, are not going to be used, so that we know what the limitations of this technology is while we have the ethical debates about whether we should be using this kind of technology on humans and what does germline gene editing really mean in the human population. So I think these things have to go hand in hand. We need to know how this works, but we also need to have a much broader discussion about why we're using it and what it's for and, and whether it's a good idea. So you wouldn't be calling for a complete moratorium, but for some sort of legislation akin to what we have on GMOs to continue? The problem with this technology from the point of view of moratoria, is that it's easy. This is not mm. a difficult technology for anyone to achieve. Now, you need a lab, you need a molecular biologist, you probably need a pretty sharp needle, but in fact, it's not hard, and that's the critical problem. In the case of previous GMO technology, it often was incredibly difficult, and you know, it took an enormous amount of time in, in terms of um, human embryos. Uh, um, we really didn't have good ways of making them transgenic. In fact, there's still not really good methods of doing that. This technology is much quicker, much easier, much cheaper, and that leads me to the, to the conclusion that actually somebody's going to use this whether we like it or not. So I think we need to know how this works and what the consequences of that might be. But it is really important that everywhere, uh, particularly in New Zealand uh, with our GMO legislation, everywhere starts thinking about what this means and the technology is here. Should we modify the human germline? Under what circumstances should we do that? What are the long-term consequences? What are the boundaries to this technology? Those discussions have to be had, and they have to be had now. Even broader than the human genome, I guess, the de-extinction or the change of agricultural crops or the eradication of weeds, there's all sorts of bigger debate. Yeah, the sky's the limit, really. And actually, just to pick up again on something Peter said, I was at a conference about a year ago, and a very interesting conversation I had with a, uh, an advisor to the US government on genetic modification technologies. And he pointed out that CRISPR is so easy that there's a groundswell of people working in the States out of their garages, effectively, in a sort of molecular biology maker movement with a few reagents and with a few basic pieces of kit, 
many of which you can buy off of eBay, you can actually set up a lab and you can do CRISPR-Cas9 manipulations. And, and people are. That was causing some level of disturbance to the United States legislative um, authorities because you could imagine, while it might be d slightly more difficult to edit a human, it is relatively trivial to edit uh, or grow and edit a bacterial cell line, um, even one which has some level of lethality. And that poses a, a clear and present risk. So this is not science fiction stuff. This happens mostly because people are bored, it would seem, or have time on their hands and are curious about what they can do. That was eye-opening to me because I don't think about that. I think about this work being done predominantly in the laboratory setting, predominantly in a legislated um, research environment. And for good those reasons. Days have probably, yeah. Those days are probably gone. And it does raise the prospect of people doing quite sophisticated experiments. Also, the same conference had this conversation about de-extinction and, and uh, using genetics in a very directed way um, to try to alleviate conservation problems, particularly around diseases. So they, they, there's a disease of frogs called chytrid fungus, which seems to be wiping out frogs all over the globe. And people were talking about uh, manipulating either the frogs to have resistance to chytrid fungus or manipulating the fungus so that it was no longer infective to frogs. There's a variety of diseases of trees, that, um, particularly the disease of um, American chestnut, uh, a, a blight that has wiped out, I think, something in the vicinity of 75% of American chestnut population. And there is a gene that confers resistance, which they are transferring from a Chinese chestnut tree into the American chestnut. Uh, this is probably the first use of transgenics to uh, restore a wild population that I'm aware of, and it actually has quite a groundswell of support, but CRISPR would have made that easier, um, just modifying the gene that's in the, in but, the species. But, you know, yeah. I think it's, I find it really kind of uh, incongruous that we spend our time going, well, you know, we could, we could genetically modify a wild species to save them. Well, they're not wild anymore, are they? <laughs> and And alongside that, you know, we're in the middle of a mass extinction event, so let's... Let's make some of the things which have been extinct for a while and bring them back because we're so good at looking after what we've got. <coughs> it seems there's a lot of discussion to be had about whether this is a smart thing to do or not. So, so just to respond to that, I have to say that I came away thinking that they were slightly mad. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, it, it's, it's a very difficult thing to balance. I mean, clearly the cost of de-extincting something is much greater than actually probably stopping it going extinct in the first place. But it's a powerful and pervasive argument for those that would want to use the natural environment uh, and then worry about the consequences later. Well, and, well as far as I'm concerned, yeah. if you're going to de-extinct a mammoth, I want it footstool size and, and I want to put my feet on it at night. I mean, a wee mammoth around the house, that'll be fine. But a, but a huge one out in the garden, that seems like a poor yeah, idea. Well, that does, that does raise the question of where you put them, yes, indeed. <laughs> and and why, why indeed you'd have it. And, and in fact, actually, even if it is a mammoth or not, because it will be a hairy elephant. Yeah. Um, that is pretending to be a mammoth. Can, can I ask you something that's kind of close to this? Because one of the things that when I look at CRISPR, you know, we have this high-precision tool in molecular genetics that can do whatever we wish with the string of DNA. But at the same time, we have a growing number but still a small number of genomes that have actually been decoded. Human genome, bees, you know, a few insects, some of the the model organisms in genetics, but not much. So we're still pretty much groping in the dark as far as our knowledge of entire genomes is concerned. Do we really need a high-precision tool like this at a time when we don't know much about 
most of our species' genomes? This is a really good point. One of the issues with genome sequencing is that we can sequence all the genomes we like. Understanding how those genomes work and what they do is really problematic. So I um, work in insects which aren't well characterised. So I've worked on bees, which now we have we have a genome for, which is good. Uh, we worked on aphids, which now we've sort of vaguely got a genome for. I, you know, there's a bunch of other insects that I work on where we have no genome at all, though we know about a few genes. The key trick for me is not that we know that these genes exist and that they're in the genome, but what they actually do. Mm. And because there's diversity in these species, the, these genes will be doing different things in different uh, species and acting in different ways. And so CRISPR as a technology, for me, is a really powerful way to actually ask questions about what genes do in particular species. If I want to understand what a gene does in, a, in an aphid, the only tool I have currently would be CRISPR. Now, we haven't done CRISPR in aphids because, in fact, we haven't um, started to think about the regulatory requirements for us to be able to make transgenic aphids. A transgenic pest insect seems like a poor idea to me. But the only way we're going to understand what these genes are doing in, in a species like aphids is, is CRISPR. We're pretty sure the technology will work, and we're pretty sure that we'll be able to turn off a gene, turn on a gene, turn a gene on in an inappropriate place. And that's the technology that tells us what those genes do. Now, if we're ever going to find solutions to aphids as an agricultural pest, then actually doing that in a precise and understanding way is important. So understanding what genes do in these species and how they might be affected by the environment and how they might be affected by their, their pests is all going to be part of a sort of modern approach to, to pest management. And I think that... CRISPR is probably um, the white knight for me that would enable me to actually do those studies. So CRISPR is a technology that is going to help us unlock those genomes and understand them. So I think we need the technology, but there's a lot for us to learn. So actually, as, as opposed to being two different sides of something, CRISPR will also help us in genomics. I think so. I think, yeah. it, I think it really is a, a critical technology for that understanding. I, and I think that you are right in raising that actually even in the human genome, which is pretty well characterised, even in the nematode genome, which is still the only animal genome to be completely sequenced, we still have genes we don't understand. There's still knowledge we don't have. And there are unexpected consequences when we mess with cells and genes in those species. Mm. And only by doing that in a controlled laboratory environment do we, do we start to understand how we might use these gen genetic and genomic technologies in a broader situation. Yeah, I mean, actually, that's exactly right. So so the ability to use CRISPR to mutate or m manipulate a single base and then look at the consequences is, is in fact, probably its most powerful uh, use. Peter's quite right. Most of the genome we still don't know a heck of a lot about, and even if it is well-sequenced, there are big black boxes that are involved in the regulation of genes, uh, that we still don't understand. I, I work a lot on repetitive DNA sequences, which make up huge tracts of the human genome and other genomes, and we don't know what most of those do. CRISPR could be a way in which we start to um, dissect out the roles of those particular genes. And in fact, I think it's important just to remember that the legislative um, approval for work on human embryos in the UK was predominantly focused on using CRISPR as a tool to understand what happens when you change uh, one gene at a time in a developing embryo. So effectively that proposal is, is not about making designer babies, it's about trying to understand which genes are critical to early development and therefore good lifelong outcomes for developing embryos. And if we know that information, then that could be useful in an IVF context or in, or in a context of, of normal pregnancy and development. So 
there CRISPR is coming back to uh, exactly what Peter said. Uh, it's a tool for understanding how genes work and how they work in concert. And to me, that remains the most exciting area in the, of pure science, but that doesn't mean that there won't be interesting conversations over the next few years about using this technology in a myriad of other ways, including making hairy elephants, as well as as well as um, you know people who are talking about getting the Moa genome and de-extincting that. I think dodos, dodos. are the nice uh, house-sized yep. de-extinctioned pet. That's yep. where we should be. Going. Passenger pigeons, um, huia. You know, maybe one conservation uh, area where we could. Uh, conceivably use this is in the battle um, against Phytophthora for cowrie dieback disease. Yeah. So, I mean, we've got no solution there, so maybe and we've got to get time. inventive. Mm. Yep. Could I ask you one last question? Would you like to be able to use, or would you like to use, CRISPR in the context of decoding the genomes of the 100 Taonga? One of the, I think, important thing that we need to be doing in New Zealand is is understanding the genomes of our own species, of our own unique and interesting and, and fantastic wildlife. You know, New Zealand is a, is a remarkable evolutionary experiment, and so we can learn a lot about New Zealand and a lot about what how New Zealand is, is in relation to the rest of the world by studying our wildlife in a whole genome sense, right? So understanding what the genome of a kakapo has in it, understanding what the genome of wetters have in it. You know, there are, we have just such so many species we should understand and we should do ourselves because, you know, if we're, if we're not going to do it, then somebody else is, and, and this is a, a truly unique New Zealand thing. A lot of that is about information, and we can learn a huge amount from sequencing the genome of an animal. We just sequenced the genome of the common wasp, which isn't a native animal, it's a pest, wonderful genome. We've learned a few things about it already which, which might help us kill it better. So there's lots of information there and I think it's, it is our duty as New Zealand geneticists to start understanding the genomes of our own species. In the longer run, um, understanding how those genes may be acting differently in some of those species would require a tool like CRISPR. But we're quite some way off of using uh, CRISPR even in species like um, stonefly or, or New Zealand wetters to see how genes that we know about in other species um, may have changed to produce those, the unique characteristics of our species. But it is currently the only tool we have to do that. I think we need to understand, we need to sequence these genomes, but I don't think we're yet at the point where we need to manipulate those genomes. But that is definitely, if we want to understand how our diversity evolved and what the consequences are and how differences between species in New Zealand and species overseas arose, then we're going to have to do those manipulative experiments in the lab, in containment, but using technologies like CRISPR. That was Peter Diadem, and before that you heard Neil Gemmell, both at the University of Otago. That's all for now, but you can stay in touch with us on Twitter at rnz underscore science. Kia ora mai. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.